welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 7 and Episode 5, Jesus and Opposition to Come. We're in Matthew's Gospel for this episode. We'll be reading shortly Matthew 17, verses 22 to 27. As the life of Jesus has progressed and we have gone through the story through our different series and episodes, we've seen a remarkable drama building up. In series three, Jesus had his first tour of Galilee, the first period of his ministry, very successful, very powerful. Many thousands of people came to hear him teach, be healed, be released from evil powers. And uh, there was an amazement all the way through Galilee at this remarkable phenomenon. Twelve of his newly formed disciples were appointed as apostles at the end of that period. Then they were taught the Sermon on the Mount, a long bit of teaching concerning living in God's kingdom and the ethical principles and the religious principles of God's kingdom. That was series four. And then in series five, we had Jesus' second tour of Galilee, in which crowds came, miracles continued, confrontations with the leaders increased the religious leaders, the 12 apostles were being trained. Then in series six, we had the third tour of Galilee, in which the 12 were sent out in pairs, and this was a new development extending Jesus' ministry. There were, of course, many more miracles here, and right towards the end of that third tour in series six, we had the remarkable event of the feeding of the 5,000 on a mountainside near the Galilean town of Bethsaida, just to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee. 5,000 men, and we assume thousands of women and children as well who are numbered. A huge crowd, probably the largest crowd that Jesus ever engaged with publicly as far as we can tell certainly the largest recorded number and it was on this occasion after this incredible miracle that many in the crowd according to John chapter 6 wanted to make Jesus king by force they wanted to force his hand to become a political figure and this event triggered the process that we see in series seven where we are now situated in the story. A great crisis was emerging. The expectations of many people were raised to such an extent that they wanted to force Jesus' hand to challenge the political leadership, both the Roman authorities who ruled over the whole country and their puppet ruler, King Herod Antipas, who ruled for the Romans in the region of Galilee. We've mentioned him on a number of occasions before, and he ruled from the town of Tiberias, which is actually very close to the town of Capernaum, which was Jesus's base and headquarters for his Galilean ministry. They wanted to force his hand, but Jesus now has to negotiate carefully that pressure from the crowd, as well as increasing opposition from the religious establishment based in Jerusalem, represented largely by the Pharisees, and also the political leadership of Herod Antipas, who had taken decisive action against John the Baptist and might turn against Jesus, imprison him or execute him or send him over to the Romans. All sorts of possibilities were 
in the air. And it's in this context that we start in the beginning of series seven to see Jesus taking his disciples aside and preparing them for a new period of his life and his ministry and their life and their ministry. He took them out of Galilee to the neighbouring province ruled by Herod Antipas's brother, Herod Philip, and to one of the major towns, Caesarea Philippi. Well away from the crowds, in a quiet place, Jesus had a remarkable conversation with his disciples, which is recorded in Matthew 16. And these are the events that happened just before what we're going to look at in this episode. And it was on that occasion that Jesus asked the very pointed question, what about you? Who do you say that I am? He was trying to get the disciples to finally, definitively and absolutely state their understanding of who he was. Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Matthew 16, verse 16. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to teach them that on the foundation of this confession and this truth that he really is the Messiah, that Jesus is going to actually form and build and develop his own church. Now, shortly after that remarkable event in which Peter confesses the identity of Jesus unambiguously, Jesus then does something else very significant. He takes his inner circle, Peter, James and John, as recorded in Matthew 17 and parallel passages in Mark and Luke, up what's described as a very high mountain, and I consider it probably to be a mountain near Caesarea Philippi called Mount Hermon, very high mountain in the north of the modern nation of Israel in the, in the Golan Heights, a disputed territory there today. And he, he goes up this very high mountain or one nearby to some remote place on the mountainside and there he is transfigured. This has just happened in the narrative. And that means that the glory of God comes on him fully. He shines with the brightness of the glory of God, which had been his original being and representation of his being in heaven. And something of that is revealed to Peter, James and John. Moses and Elijah reappear on earth and join Jesus in a remarkable conversation. And as recorded in Luke's account, which we've already noted, uh, but in Luke's account, just to recap... In Luke 9.30, it says, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment in Jerusalem. So the whole direction of what Jesus was going to do is now changing. No longer in Galilee. He spent months, years working in Galilee. He's travelled hundreds, if not thousands, of miles on foot and and so on, around all the towns and villages of this northern province. This is his base, this is where he's known, this is where people come to see him. But he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to fulfil all that has been predicted about him, and it's going to bring about what Luke here describes as his departure. In other words, his death and his resurrection. Now, as they come down the mountainside, Peter, James and John with Jesus, we saw in the last episode, Jesus performed a miracle for a young boy who was oppressed by an evil spirit when he met the rest of the disciples who'd failed to be able to set this boy free. And so 
From that situation, Jesus then returns to Galilee just briefly with his disciples. They now know that things are going to change. They have this feeling that change is coming, but they don't fully understand it. They're returning to Galilee, but they have been uh, warned that they may be leaving Galilee. And they may be heading up to Jerusalem, which is a risky thing to do, because Jerusalem is the place where the religious establishment, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, has its authority, where the temporal is, where the priests are, where the Pharisees are based. And all of these institutions and groups have turned against Jesus decisively by this point. So if you go to Jerusalem, you're heading into the teeth of fierce opposition. There is real risk, risk of confrontation, risk of violence and risk to the life of Jesus and indeed risk to the life of his disciples. So this is going to be a difficult period of Jesus' ministry as he moves towards Jerusalem. There's a sense of anticipation, of foreboding, of the necessary fulfilment of difficult events in Jesus' life. So that's the context. And I've extended the context quite deliberately in this episode just to help us to understand the small passage of scripture that we're going to look at now as we look at Matthew uh, 17 and verses 22 and 23, first of all, and then the subsequent passage. But just two verses to start with. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Now Luke records this same incident in Luke chapter 9, but he adds one aspect which is important for us to take note of. It's in Luke 9, verse 45. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, this isn't Jesus's first prediction of future suffering, because Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, between the events at Caesarea Philippi and the Transfiguration, the two events I've just described again to you, it says in Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The key phrase there is from that time on. So we now reached a point in Jesus' life where he is going to regularly talk to his disciples about the difficult times that come ahead. And this is the second recorded incident of that, that we're reading today. But you'll notice the struggling of the disciples. They're filled with grief. They're really, really sad. They're really troubled. They're confused. And they find it a difficult topic to talk to Jesus about. They internalise their feelings. 
They have seen Jesus at the height of his powers and at the height of his popularity, just within days and weeks of this moment beforehand. They've seen some incredible events. They've seen the transfiguration, Peter, James and John, seen the feeding of the 5,000. They've seen numerous miracles. They've seen huge crowds. But Jesus says that three things are going to happen. He's going to suffer, die and be raised again from the dead. Three vital ingredients of what's going to happen. Suffering, death and resurrection. But it's hidden from them. It would have to be repeated many times. I wonder if you've had an experience in your life, if you're a Christian, where God speaks to you about something regularly and you're close to it. You're not able to hear what he's saying to you until much later on. And the message has come many times. Well, the disciples are going through something of this process. They had to rethink their expectations of the kingdom of God coming and of the place of the Messiah. They really wanted Jesus to conclude his ministry by a powerful demonstration of his authority and overturn the religious and political rulers and just install himself as the king in Israel. They knew that there were prophecies about the Messiah and God himself ruling in Jerusalem that filled the Old Testament. They're all over the prophets of the Old Testament and in the Psalms, numerous prophecies like this. And they hoped and desired that it should happen right there and then, within a year or two of that event, perhaps. And they also desired that they would have some part in this new kingdom that would be established. But it was not to be. And Jesus was trying here to prepare them for a difficult future where they were going to have to go through much suffering themselves. After this very brief statement here in Matthew, this second prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, Matthew then tells us of an event, really unusual event that happens in Capernaum concerning taxation. He's the only gospel writer who tells us this story. Let's read it from Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duties and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch and open its mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. 
What an unusual story. What a remarkable miracle. Now, we don't actually hear the miracle recounted as taking place. We hear a prediction of what the miracle was going to be. But it obviously did take place. Otherwise, Matthew wouldn't have recorded it so confidently in his text. Jesus had just returned to his headquarters, his base in Capernaum, after this long period of time where he'd been away with his disciples in the Caesarea Philippi area, which I described to you a few moments ago. He's back home. And then comes what appears to be a hostile question. Remember, our topic today is opposition to come. And Jesus made a general prediction, but now there's a specific challenge. The collector of this particular tax says to Peter rather abruptly, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? An accusation against Jesus. But first of all, we need to understand what is this temple tax that is being spoken of? Now, when taxation is discussed in the Gospels, almost always we're talking about the official government taxation that the Romans administered. They had their own tax collectors and they collected tax in a number of different ways, uh, not least customs as people travelled along the roads taking goods from one place to another and along the main highways through Israel between the nation and other nearby nations. It was a main thoroughfare for goods travelling and for commerce. We hear about this. We hear stories of tax collector. We hear of Matthew himself, the writer of this gospel, who was a tax collector. We hear later on of Zacchaeus as a tax collector. We hear of tax collectors as a group, tax collectors and sinners as irreligious and selfish people. We hear Jesus later on talking about a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector going up to the temple in Jerusalem. So the issue of tax collection is in the narrative of the Gospels, and we cover it on a number of different occasions as it occurs in the story. But this taxation issue is different. This is not the Romans. This is not the Romans' puppet king, Herod Antipas in Galilee. No, this is a religious tax organised by the Jewish religious authorities, and it's called the temple tax. The origin of this taxation is in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 30 and verse 13, it states that every person should give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel. And in verse 16, it should be used for the service of the tent of meeting. Now, this is the origin of the concept that later became known as the temple tax. The tent of meeting was the tabernacle, which was a very large and elaborate tent, which represented the place of worship for ancient Israel initially, the presence of God in the middle, the sacrificial system taking place, the priests operating there as they moved around from place to place in the wilderness. But then after that, it was replaced by a temple in the time of King Solomon. Now, the temple tax evolved from this law of Moses. 
and was used at the time of Jesus to pay for the upkeep of the temple. The temple was the centre of Judaism. Huge amount of activity took place there. Many priests and their assistants, Levites, worked there part-time or full-time. They had to be accommodated. There was uh, businesses to run, the exchange of money, the selling of animals, hospitality. They had to manage the vast crowds that came for the major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, which are referred to in the Gospels and which we've already commented on in earlier episodes. And also, money was taken by the priests and the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, for their own benefit as well. It was known to be quite a corrupt system. And so the priests and the Sanhedrin had a number of methods of collecting money. They collected money from pilgrims by having collecting boxes open and you threw your coins into the treasury. They collected money through their marketing operations and trading operations in the temple, which we've noted when Jesus cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, and he'll do it again later on in the final week of his life, and we'll come to that story again. They collected money in many ways, but this tax was a good way of collecting money all over the country. At this time, men, adult men, were the ones who were taxed. And so tax collectors would come and they would go to men in each town and village and ask them the sort of question that's being asked here. Did Jesus pay the temple tax? Well, Peter's answer was clear that he did. Yes, he does, he replied. But then something really strange and prophetic happens because Peter then goes to Jesus to talk about this and ask him about this particular payment. And before Peter has told Jesus anything about the incident, Jesus, who wasn't present in that questioning by the tax official representing the temple, although he wasn't present, he knew what had happened and he spoke prophetically to Peter because Matthew says very specifically, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own children or from others? And as Jesus goes on to talk about this taxation, his basic argument is that if God the Father is king over the temple, then Jesus as his son is exempt as a member of his family, so to speak, from paying the temple tax. However, Jesus said, although he's exempt, there's no reason why he should have to pay in terms of his divine status as the son of God. As a human being and as a Jew, obedient to the law of Moses, he will pay the tax and avoid unnecessary conflict with the religious authorities. He was willing to do that, even though the authorities are corrupt and he then demonstrated his power by asking Peter to do something really strange. Go to the Sea of Galilee, the lake, which Peter knew well as a fisherman. Take a line, not a boat, not going with nets into the centre of the lake as Peter did frequently previously as a fisherman. No, just take a single line, catch a fish and look in its mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin. I mean, this was 
an astonishing miracle of provision that Jesus carried out at this point through Peter. Now, an unusual story, an important theme, Jesus and the opposition to come. It's a major theme. It'll be with us for many episodes to come because it's a major theme of the second part of the gospel narrative which we're entering into. I have a few reflections to conclude this episode. Here we see again an important point that we have to distinguish the nature of Jesus' mission and the process of establishing his kingdom. Jesus' mission focuses around his first coming and his second coming and what happens in between. His first coming launched the kingdom of God, launched the church, released the gospel message to be preached for salvation amongst the Jews and very quickly amongst the nations of the world. The kingdom would grow, but under pressure. We saw this very clearly when we looked at the parables that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13, the parables about the growth of the kingdom, the exponential growth, the powerful growth, the resistance to growth, the growth of evil at the same time as the growth of the good of the kingdom of God. All these realities are in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. But his second coming, which is not the focus here in this passage, will bring that process to an end because all opposition will be overturned and defeated, all demonic powers or human opposition to the kingdom will be defeated as Jesus comes and launches his age of the Messiah. So we have to understand this process and we have to see here that at this particular point in history, everyone involved in Jesus needed to realise that he's now heading to the really tough moments, to suffering, to sacrificial death, to death which was going to be atoning death in the place of others. It was going to be an atoning substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus was going to make, which opened up the way of salvation. Then he was going to be raised from the dead. So we need to understand the nature of Jesus' mission and the process of establishing his kingdom. And we're still in that process, of course, in the church today. We're in between the first coming and the second coming. We have to keep both realities firmly in our minds. Second reflection that I would have here is it's interesting to note that Jesus affirms that he is under the Jewish law. It's important to remember that Jesus, during his lifetime, was a full observer of the law of Moses, the biblical laws that God gave to the Jewish people. He says in Matthew 5.17, I do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, he fulfilled them in a number of different ways. But one of the ways he fulfilled them was through perfect obedience. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Notice that expression, born 
under the law. Jesus was born under the law of Moses. It was an obligation for him to obey those laws of Moses which were applicable to him. And this extension of the law of Moses in Exodus 30, he is willing to obey until such a time as he dies on the cross, introduces a new covenant, and then the law of Moses ceases to have a function. It becomes obsolete, according to the writer, the book of Hebrews. And we enter into a new age where the law of Moses has no direct relevance in itself to the Christian community. We are led by the Spirit, and any laws in the laws of Moses that have application to us are those which the New Testament picks out specifically and applies to us. My third point of application here is that Jesus demonstrated a respectful attitude to human authority, even when it was corrupt, ineffective or harsh. And my final comment would be, here is a very interesting but largely neglected parable of God's provision. We have the wonderful miracles of the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, which we've recently studied. But here we have a very small event, as it appears, just the provision of one coin. But it's equally miraculous, and it is the provision of God to meet a need at the time. So God is the provider. He's also our provider. And he doesn't just provide the vast things for the big needs that other people may have. We notice here he provides for the specific needs that individuals have. Peter needed to pay this tax. He didn't immediately have that money available, it appears. Or if he did, Jesus provided the resource miraculously, showing Peter and showing us through the text that he is able to provide miraculously. Let's believe for that more fully and more thoroughly through having studied this remarkable story. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.